The topic today is the Jesuits, the Counter-Reformation, the True Gospel, and uh, the Clever Counterfeit. This talk will show you, I believe, how to escape religious depression, fanaticism, and the scourge of Phariseeism. It will show you the path to peace, contentment, and will place in your hands the key that will unlock the gates of paradise. Firstly today, some stories. One from the past, one from the days of Jesus, and three stories from our own day. Would you please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 18 and verses 9 and onwards, please. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9 and onwards. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 and onwards. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. As you can see in this story here, the professional religious person, the Pharisee, was a lost man, whereas the sinner was saved. That's the first story. The second story comes from Melbourne. There was a young man there when I was running the campaign in the Dallas Brooks in downtown Melbourne in the state of Victoria, Australia. A young man who got caught up with a group of people who taught him to be saved, you must be sinless, you must be perfect. And if you die without complete sinlessness, you're going to be lost. This young man, in a state of absolute despair, got in his motor car, drove it into his father's garage, and closed the door and let the engine run, and took his life. And then when I was the pastor of the Wurunga Church on the north shore of Sydney, Beverly and I will not forget the night at two or three in the morning when there was a rapping on our window and uh, I looked out the window and there was a young man absolutely distraught. I said, come round to the front door. So he came to the front door and when he came to the front door, I let him in and said, what is the problem? He said, I can't sleep. I said, why can't you sleep? He said, because I'm not right with God. He said, I am up at two in the morning. I'm reading my Bible all the time. I'm reading the red books all the time, but I cannot get peace with God because I'm not good enough. So I tried to explain to him the gospel. He said, you are a deceiver. You are a deceiver. Why am I a deceiver? Because you must be preaching cheap grace. You're telling me that I can be saved today. And so, my work for this young man apparently was of no avail at the time because a few days later they 
locked him up in an asylum for the insane. Religious despair. Then here in the United States of America, so you will understand that this disease has spread around the world. I can think of a great church filled with wonderful people and a lady was teaching. She was a lady elder, God bless her, and we have those in our church too. And she was teaching a Bible study class and she told how she was baptized, but she said, when I was a young woman and I came to the time of being baptized, I was told I should repent of my sins. And she said, I had none to repent of. She said, I could not think of anything that I had done wrong. She said, I have been blessed because I do not have that problem. She believed that she had attained to a state of sinlessness and perfection. But as her pastor, I had to plead with her, stop driving people out of the church. She said, evangelism is destroying our church. It is bringing in all these uncouth people. We don't need them in our church. She was a lady elder. She spoke from the front and I believe she still functions today, driving out more people than a successful evangelist could ever hope to bring in. But she is perfect, cold, upright, and a wonderful defender of the truth she has finally attained. There are some stories. Now I want to tell you the story of the Jesuits and the Counter-Reformation. The hero of the Jesuits was a Spaniard. His name was Don Enigo Lopez de Recaldi. He was, and I hope my Spanish friends will appreciate how I just got that flow there. Don Enigo, I have practiced this for 24 hours. Don Enigo Lopez de, I'm sorry, de Recaldi. He was born in 1491 in the town of Loyola in the country of Spain. We know him better as Ignatius Loyola, more correctly, Ignatius of Loyola. He has had a mighty influence upon the world and upon some of you and upon, I believe, my own church. From the grave, he reached out and touched those two young Australians. They were not aware of his touch. He touched those two young Australian men and drove them to despair. And he's touched a multitude of others who profess to be Christians, as we will see today. About the time Ignatius Loyola was born, another baby boy came into the world. And both these Babies were destined to become formidable opponents when they reached adulthood. Martin Luther was born in 1483, just eight years before the boy from Spain. Luther, like Ignatius of Loyola, was a Roman Catholic and he studied law. But he found that law did not bring peace to his troubled heart. And he became a monk of the Augustinians, a very great monastery named after a very great man, St. Augustine. And he was tremendously concerned with his own soul. He asked himself the question over and over again, how can a man be right with God? You must remember that Martin Luther lived at a time of great spiritual darkness. In those days, people did not have the Bible. Everybody here takes the Bible for granted. But people in those days did not have Bibles. Even the priests did not have Bibles. There was tremendous superstition and persecution. In his despair, he would take a lash 
He would beat his back until the blood came out because he wanted more than anything else to be right with God. The church fathers, despairing of this German renegade, sent him to Rome, hoping that he would find God in Rome. But as he walked around Rome and saw the evil that was done in the name of God, he later said, if there is a hell, then surely Rome is built over it. On one occasion, he was climbing up the, the holy stairs. They say these stairs were taken from Jerusalem by the angels and dropped in the city of Rome. And as he climbed up the stairs, he was doing penance. If he prayed on a certain stair for a certain period of time, it would relieve him of so many millions of years in purgatory. And as he was praying earnestly, the thought came into his mind, could it be that all this is wrong? He went back to Wittenberg where he became a doctor of theology and he started to study the book of Romans. He spent years studying the book of Romans. For a while it was an incomprehensible mystery as it is to some of you. That's why some of you never, never read it because the words are so big and so difficult and he had the same experience but because he wanted to be saved he continued continued to pour out his intellect and his soul and his search for God and he majored on Galatians and the book of Romans and the book of Psalms. I want you to come to Romans chapter 1, a text that became famous with Martin Luther. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. But firstly, when he read about the righteousness of God in the book of Psalms, Martin Luther said, I hate it. You see, Martin Luther had the mind of, of a scholar and he was very logical and analytical and so he said, I hate it. The righteousness of God, the book of Psalms talks about the righteousness of God. He said, how can the righteousness of God be good news because I am unrighteous and God is righteous, I am sinful and God is sinless. And the Bible tells me that the righteousness of God reacts against the unrighteousness of man. And therefore, if I am unrighteous and if God is righteous, then God must hate me. And when he was confessing his sins before the father confessor, he went through his sins and he said, Father, I'm a lost man. And my sin is unpardonable. And the old confessor who was a good man said, Martin, Martin, that is for God to judge. He said, but God has judged me already. He has found me guilty. And he said, no, no, that is for God to judge. But Martin Luther said, I have committed the unpardonable sin. My sin is an abomination. Because he said, I hate God. And the old priest said to him, Martin, but you must love God. He said, I, I cannot love God because God doesn't love me. And this is my unpardonable sin. Father, Father, I hate God. I want you to notice some of the great truths that Martin Luther discovered that some of you are going to discover here today. As he studied this book of Romans, he discovered that the righteousness of God is not bad news for the sinner. It is good news. 
the great British reformer who also excelled in his study of the book of Romans called this book, this was Tyndale, good, glad and merry tidings that makes a man's heart to sing for joy and his feet to dance. In fact, Martin Luther said a Christian ought to memorize every word of this book. And I want you to notice the good news that he discovered. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 and onwards, please. Romans 3 verse 20 and onwards. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 and onwards. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. Now the Bible says you can't be saved by your, by your deeds. You can't be saved by keeping the holy law of God. You can't be saved by your attainments. The Bible says the law simply serves to show us our sinfulness. Verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now this remarkable passage teaches a number of tremendously important truths. Number one, we are sinners. The Bible says all have sinned, that's in the past. But the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God, that is present, continuous. The Bible says we have sinned in the past, and the Bible says we continue to fall short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that there are no, no, no perfect people. The Bible says we are not saved by our works in keeping the law of God, but the Bible says we're saved by the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We are saved not by our attainments, but by his atonement on the cross. The Bible says we are saved through faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And when Martin Luther, this wonderful German Roman Catholic priest, discovered this truth in the monastery, the old confessor one day found him in his room. He hadn't gone to prayers, but they found him in his room and he was kneeling before the crucifix. He was holding on to the cross and he was crying out in German, Father, for me, for me, for me, for me. At last, at last, the agony was over. He had discovered that Christ had died for him on the cross and the righteousness of God was given to the sinner, not because he deserved it, but as a free gift. A free gift for me, for me. And the Bible says we are justified by this marvelous gift. And when the Bible says we are justified, it means that we are declared righteous, not because of any good thing that we've ever done in our lives, but we are justified and declared righteous simply by the grace of God. And we get this wonderful gift by the act of faith when we believe. And this gift is ours today. Would you please come over here to Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Luther loved this text. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you the question, have you got peace? 
Have you got peace with God? You can have peace with God today because the Bible says, seeing we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We are justified. That is past tense. Would you please notice Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. However, to the man who does not work, that is for salvation, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. The Bible says, now this is most important that you see this and understand this. The Bible says here that God justifies, as it says in the KJV, the ungodly. It says here that God justifies the wicked. Now, some people believe that God justifies the man who has finally become sinless. And when a person has attained to the righteousness of God, God justifies him and says, now you're good enough to come home. But the Bible says here that God justifies the wicked. And so, if you are a wicked person, and we all are without God, we are all ungodly. The Bible says when I come to Christ and give him my life and believe that he died for my sins, the Bible says God justifies or declares that the wicked is righteous. What an amazing, wonderful truth. And this happens not at some time in the future. This happens now, now, now in the present. Would you please come to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So if I come to Christ, and if I believe in Christ, I am justified through faith, and the Bible says I am not condemned. I am ready for the judgment. I am ready for death. I am ready for the coming of Christ. And when Martin Luther discovered this great truth, it was a great day for the world. And I want you to know something. Luther discovered this great truth by the Holy Spirit through the scriptures. This is important. Martin Luther discovered the truth of the gospel, not through some mystical experience, but through the study of the scriptures. October 31 came, 1517. And Martin Luther nailed up his 95 Theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg. This was an answer to Tetzel, who was working for the Archbishop of Mainz, who was working in league with Pope Leo X, who had proclaimed a special indulgence so that the great cathedral St. Peter's could be built. And when Tetzel went out to preach with great fervor, he said, as soon as a coin clinks in the chest, a soul flies up to heavenly rest. He said, not only is this indulgence good for you and for your sins, it is good for your loved ones even in purgatory. And Martin Luther said, enough is enough. And Martin Luther nailed up the 95 Theses on the door of the church. And the Reformation was launched. In 1521, as you will remember, Martin Luther, the excommunicated heretic, was invited to come, ordered to come to the Diet at Worms. And there, sitting on the throne, was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V. And you'll remember, he was asked by the inquisitor, are these your writings? Yes, 
Will you recant these writings? And Martin Luther said, well, if I recant them, I'll be recanting some good things that you even believe in. And so they sent him away for a day, and when he came back, the inquisitor said, I've one question to ask you, Martin Luther. Will you recant these writings? And you all know some of the most famous words in history where Martin Luther said, unless I'm convinced by the texts of the Bible, my mind, my soul is held by the word of God and therefore I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. And uh, they were some of the greatest words ever, ever said. What was happening to our Spaniard? Don Inigo Lopez de Recalde, or for those who can't speak Spanish like I can't, Ignatius Loyola. He was a man with great courage and great talent, great ability. One of the greatest men in the history of the world. He became a soldier. And in 1521, when Martin Luther was standing before the Diet saying, I will not recant, he was fighting a battle and he was badly wounded. Uh, he came close to death, and while he was in recovery, he was given a book about the saints, and he read about these wonderful saints, the great Roman Catholic saints. And then he went and shut himself up in a cave, seeking God. Because like Martin Luther, he felt himself to be a wretched sinner, and he said, how can a person be made right with God? But Ignatius did not go to the Holy Scriptures. Ignatius went to mysticism and he prayed up to seven hours a day on his knees and he prayed that God would come to him with a revelation of truth. This man was as sincere as they come. He had dreams and visions. He believes that he was on 30 different distinct occasions visited by the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now some of us, and you here in this church know what we believe about this. We believe that the dead are sleeping in the grave awaiting the resurrection. And so we believe that the Blessed Virgin Mary is going to be with Jesus in the kingdom of God at the resurrection. But we don't believe she's there yet. But Ignatius Loyola spoke to someone like the Virgin Mary on 30 different occasions and this person said, I am calling you in the name of Almighty God to stop Martin Luther. At Mass, a few days later, he had a vision of Christ at the Mass and he said, therefore the Mass must very well be the very body and the blood of the Lord because I have seen Christ. Under the inspiration of this spirit, he started to call disciples. The first two were Peter Fabre and Francis Xavier, who became great leaders of the church. He started a mighty spiritual movement that is called the Counter-Reformation. He wrote the book, did Ignatius of Loyola, Spiritual Exercises, my friend, one of the masterpieces. One of the masterpieces. It told a person how he was to contemplate hell. 
how the person was to contemplate the sufferings of Christ, how a person was to come into the presence of God, and how the Spirit of God said that when a person became one of his followers, he was to stop using the mind and do just what he was told, unquestioning obedience. And he taught the doctrine that the end justifies the means. And he took for his order the words for the greater glory of God. And because the greater glory of God cannot be surpassed, anything you do for the glory of God is lawful. Therefore, it became part of the theology of the Jesuits that it was all right to kill and to cheat and to lie and to steal. Any sin was permissible for the greater glory of God. In 1540, the, pro the Pope proclaimed an edict and set up the Jesuit order. These men became the superlative soldiers of Christ soldiers of Christ arise. The man in charge was called the general because they were the soldiers. He was called the black pope because in some ways he was greater than the pope himself. And the black pope stood in the very place of God and he demanded unquestioning obedience. And the Jesuits became a mighty force in the world. They were sent to infiltrate every organization, every government, every university, every Protestant church had its Jesuits standing in the pulpits and in their highest church councils. The Jesuits, while he said, the great commentator, speaking of the Jesuits, he said, there is no disguise he will not wear, no creed he will not profess. They spread all over the world. They became a mighty movement by the thousands with one great mission, to destroy the Protestant Reformation in any way, at any time, in any place, at any price, and reestablish the supremacy of the papacy. Then came the year 1545. The year 1545 was the year of the Council of Trent. Trent was a little town in Austria. The purpose was to answer the Protestant preachers. And the Jesuits by this time had become in just a few years so formidable that they were in charge. And the first great question that was debated at the Council of Trent was the Bible or tradition. And some of the Holy Fathers said, let us answer these accursed Protestants by the Bible. But the battle was won for tradition because one of the Holy Fathers stood up and said, my brethren, we cannot say the Bible and the Bible alone because we without the authority of scripture changed the Sabbath. This was brought up in the Council of Trent. And then they discussed the doctrine of justification. Martin Luther said, by grace alone, through faith alone. And here I've written one of the decrees of the Council of Trent. This 
is making it into a summary. That the ground of justification is not simply the faith by which the sinner appropriates Christ and his atoning sacrifice, but is also the new love and good works wrought in the heart by Christ's Spirit. And the vast majority of my friends say, Amen, this is the very truth of God. But this is the teaching of the Jesuits. The ground of justification is not simply the faith by which the sinner appropriates Christ and his atoning sacrifice, but is also the new love and good works wrought in the heart by Christ's spirit. What does it mean? Let me explain it. The Bible teaches that I come to Christ. As soon as I come to Christ, I am declared righteous. Therefore, justification is not a process but an act. Justification is not a process. It is a declaration. But the Church of Rome said, the Spirit of God comes and lives in the heart and the Spirit of God takes the clay of the sinner and the Spirit of God fashions the clay into the very image of God. And at the end of this wonderful process, the sinner appears to have the very image of God and then the work of justification is completed and he's ready for heaven. Hence the doctrine of purgatory. Because the church fathers know that no person in this lifetime attains to this blessed condition of sinlessness and thus the soul must be thrown into the flames of purgatory. And after millions of years, the soul is fit to stand in the presence of God. You see, they believe in grace alone through faith plus the works of the Spirit done in the heart. I have here today an outstanding article published in the ministry magazine by Errol Webster, the pastor of the Orange Adventist Church in New South Wales, Australia. Every person ought to be a student of these things. What many do not realize is that for both Protestants and Catholics, salvation is by grace alone. Catholics believe that the whole of justification is the work of God's grace. What then is the difference? Let me read it to you. Now, some of you may say these things are irrelevant. Let me tell you something. It is the difference between light and darkness, between day and night, and heaven and hell. And if you were sitting here today in church saying this is irrelevant, Pray today that God will give you a spiritual awakening and roll away the darkness from your minds. Listen, sin and depravity. The basic difference between the two views was and is in the understanding of sin and depravity. The Catholic position externalized sin and taught that depravity is curable in this life. In other words, sinless perfection and complete obedience are possible in this life through indwelling righteousness. Taking its starting point from Thomas Aquinas, who taught an incomplete view of the fall, 
The teaching of Trent insisted that the will was fallen or corrupted, but the intellect was not affected. In justification, human sin is not merely covered, but actually eradicated. In contrast, the reformers believe that sin is what we are, our disposition, and that depravity is total, that in every area of our being, that every area of our being was affected by the fall. The final effect will not be eradicated until glorification. A significant, subtle, but often unnoticed shift took place in the council, in the Catholic doctrine of justification at the Council of Trent. Trent's teaching was not the crude legalism that Luther encountered years before when Tetzel was selling indulgences, whereby it was believed people could purchase forgiveness. The Reformation had spread too widely for that to be accepted even by the bishops. What Trent did was to substitute the work of the Holy Spirit for the work of Christ the Savior, thus making the Holy Spirit our justifier instead of Christ. Trent made the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in the new birth and sanctification, God's gift of grace in us, the basis of justification instead of the completed work of Christ. According to Trent, God had to make us righteous before he can acquit us. In other words, believers must become sinlessly perfect first through this indwelling righteousness. The teaching of the Council of Trent is believed today by most Protestants, by most believers. It is a doctrine when followed to its logical conclusion brings to the soul hopelessness, despair, and uh, self-righteousness, whereby I have no sins to confess. I want you to notice over here, this is important, the Bible teaching, justification and sanctification. Justification does not change my state, it changes my standing. Before I come to Christ, my standing is that I'm lost and damned and doomed. When I come to Christ, I have a 100% standing with God, declared completely righteous. I am then ready. Then, now, it is complete. It is for me. It was done for me. I did not do it. It was done for me by the blood of Christ on the cross. When he cried out, it is finished, it is finished, he was saying, the work is finished. It is the root of salvation. Sanctification deals with my state, which is never perfect. It is never perfect. There are no perfect people, even though the lady said, the lady elder said, I have no sins to confess. This is because she wasn't over here. She hadn't come to Christ. She was deluded. But sanctification changes the state. I'm never perfect. It is a progressive work. 
It is incomplete until Jesus comes in glory. It is a work that is done in me by the Spirit of God. It is the fruit. This is the root. You see, justification, sanctification, my dearly beloved friends, these two works are always distinct, always distinct, but never separate. Because the only person whom God will justify is the person whom the Spirit of God can sanctify. And what the Council of Trent was, was, did was this. Listen to this. Let us sink down into your minds. What the Council of Trent did was to confuse the two. And to make justification into sanctification. Into a process whereby people are always striving and trying to get better. Listen. The fruitage of Rome's doctrinal perfectionism is to spare and doom and depression or delusions, denunciations and desolations and destructions of souls. Let me be very specific. A person who is getting ready instead of being ready will be a very miserable person to know. In the church, he will either be always depressed and discouraged, and then he'll say, what is the use? I will leave the church. And my church here is filled with people who once were Adventists, and they left the church, and they came back because they heard the gospel. Some of you here today are in that very condition. Perhaps most of you, you know what I'm talking about. Because many of you in this church went through the agony of despair. I can never be perfect, so why even try? And that's why multitudes leave us. And why they leave the Baptists and the Methodists and the Catholics. But there's an even worse condition. Those who believe this, the doctrine of the Jesuits, become deluded, some of them do, and they actually believe, like the lady elder, that they have attained, and they're better than anybody else, and evangelism is cursing this church because it's bringing in all these awful people. Someone's sitting in my seat, and they're the people who become hard, harsh, legalistic, critical, and they make dreadful parents and dreadful teachers. Why do so many give up? Because they say, I don't want it because my parents so pushed it down my throat and I hated it so much. And when they're old enough, they leave it. This is the main cause of bitterness Criticism, harshness, and self-righteousness because Ignatius Loyola still reaches a hand from the grave and touches millions and millions and millions of people. I want you to notice a story. Come over here to Luke. 
Luke chapter 15 and verse 1 and 2. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, dear hearts. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Do you know what the Pharisees believed? This doctrine here. The Pharisees taught it was possible and necessary for the sinner to become absolutely sinless. And when this happened for Israel, the Messiah would come. And so the Messiah could not come because the people were not good enough. And the Pharisees believed that salvation was by the grace of God, but the work done in your heart prepared you for the coming of Christ. No atonement necessary. The Pharisees were the hardest, the most loveless people in the world. They were great at pointing out the faults of others. And they did not realize that whenever they pointed a finger to somebody else, three fingers pointed back. Jesus said, don't try to take the moat out of your brother's eye when you got a four by two in your own. He was talking to the Pharisees. And they said of Jesus, this man receives sinners. And he does. He does. He receives sinners. When I come to Christ, he receives me. Glory be to God. And then Jesus told the three stories to prove that on this occasion, the old Pharisees were right. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost boy. You know the story of the lost boy? Sells it all, loses it all, turns his back on his father, goes down into the pigsty, eats the pig's food. He comes to himself. That's the work of the Spirit of God. Working in the heart, preparing the sinner to come home. And the boy goes home and the father, glory be to God, is looking down the road. He's always been looking down the road. And when he sees the boy coming, he runs to meet him and he kisses him, doesn't kick him. And he puts a robe around him. He doesn't say, boy, get in there and have a bath. The bathing comes later. The bathing comes later, but the father puts the robe around the boy. Gives him a new standing. He's a son. 100% perfect. Now complete for him by the blood of the father's son. Puts a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, a robe that covers up the stink of the pigsty. I guess... When that boy got home, there was some scrubbing to do. After you come to Christ, there's a lot of scrubbing to do to get the pig pen off you and me. Isn't it true? But you know in the story, out in the field, there is the elder brother. <laughs> the Pharisee, he said, I never broke any of your commandments. I've been always working for you. But when this son of yours comes home who has sold our money on prostitutes, he'd never do that. 
For one reason, he was too mean. But there he was. He wasn't out, my friend, sinning with the prostitutes. He was in the field working. He was a good worker. The father goes out and says, come in. He says, no, I'm not coming in. He hears music. He says, I don't like the music. A Pharisee can't stand the music. I don't like the music. Music and, God forbid, it says dancing. They're having a party. They're having a party because they're rejoicing that the boy has come home. The father says, son, all I have is yours. But your brother was lost and is found. He is dead. He's alive. When you come to Christ, the lost is found. The dead is alive. Now, that is the truth. This is the darkness of evil spirits. And Ignatius Loyola got it from the Blessed Virgin Mary, who's dead in the grave. Therefore, what should I do? Believe now. Accept now. Be forgiven now. Be justified now. Have peace now. Be ready now. Come home now. For the greater glory of God, amen and amen.